you think I woke up wanting to add four seats to the Supreme Court? No, but they're forcing my hand here with the people that they've selected and the behavior that they're exhibiting. This is not a normal Supreme Court. These folks have gone off the rails in a way that's really damaging to our democracy and to our personal liberties. The only way to fix that is to add seats to the Supreme Court. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Megan Hatcher-Mays, the Director of Democracy Policy for Indivisible. She leads democracy reform efforts for that group, as well as the Unrig the Courts Coalition, which advocates adding four more seats to the Supreme Court. We talked about Megan's career, how she became a lawyer, came to work as an aide for Congress member Eleanor Holmes Norton of D.C., and then at the good group Demand Justice before joining Indivisible, what they're up to there and what to expect from the Supreme Court this term. She's an excellent guest. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Megan Hatcher Mays of Indivisible. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Megan, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, sure. I'm Megan Hatcher Mays. I'm the Director of Democracy Policy at Indivisible. Believe it or not, I am a lawyer. I'm still licensed in New York, but don't come to me if you have any problems. (laughs) I've worked on the Hill. I worked for Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton. I worked on DC Statehood for a long time, uh, alongside some other issues. And then I was a counsel at Demand Justice, where I did my best to fight the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation. Tell me about your family growing up. Okay. Yeah, I'm from Seattle originally. I was born in Seattle and my mom was born in Seattle and my grandma was born in Seattle. So I have deep roots, pretty deep roots in Seattle. My whole family still lives there. Growing up in Seattle, it's like you're just surrounded by nature all the time. And it feels like you can kind of hide out from things and you feel a little untouched by what's happening in the rest of the country. But my parents were really deeply interested in politics. So I had a lot of political news on in the background growing up. My parents were really involved. I I remember my dad taking me to vote. His polling place was my elementary school. So we went and voted together when I was like eight or nine. (laughs) So that's what it was kind of like. I think I got a really early sort of political education from my parents. 
I assume since you're a lawyer, you made it to college. I did. <laughs> where, where was that? That was at a college called Western Washington University. It's about 90 minutes north of Seattle in a town called Bellingham. It's actually closer to the Canadian border than to Seattle. And the drinking age in Canada is only 19. So we went to Canada quite a bit when I was in college. <laughs> was that a and, good experience for you, Western yeah, it was, Washington? It was great. Yeah, it was a really cool community. Bellingham is a really cool town. If anyone's ever in Western Washington, really recommend going there. It's basically just a million trees, a million trees and water. It's great. I got my degree in art history, though, for some reason. I don't totally know why. Nothing <laughs> wrong I, with art history. Yeah. And Super interesting, up, actually. Yeah. yeah, I ended up doing this. At everyone I know is a political science scientist. And I'm like, well, if anyone ever wants to go to the museum, let me know. But yeah, it was great. Did you work between college and law school? Yeah, I did. Yeah. But I had a lot of non- politics or non-legal jobs. My first job at, out of college actually was at Urban Outfitters on Broadway in Seattle for those who are familiar. It's not there anymore. So I was like folding t-shirts and helping customers and stuff for about two years. And yeah, I had lots of jobs in between that and law school. I eventually took a job doing like office administration at a private school in Seattle. The great thing about that job is my schedule was pretty flexible. So I could do a lot of volunteer work. So I ended up doing some volunteer work with kids who were in the foster care system and who needed tutoring, things like that. And that really kind of set me on the path towards wanting to go to law school because I just remember thinking like, this must be really challenging on a personal level, but really challenging legally too, not just for the kids, but for their parents and foster parents. So that kind of got me thinking, yeah, maybe I'd want to go to law school and try to help people. So that's ultimately why I decided to go. Where did you go? I went to Washington University in St. Louis. So I lived in Seattle my entire life. And the first time I moved away from my hometown was to St. Louis. So kind of an interesting... But you had to stay with the name Washington. I, I did, yeah. <laughs> I had to stay with Washington. I can't have a non-Washington school on my resume. But living in St. Louis was... It was really great. I had never lived in the Midwest before. It really did me good to just live in a totally different type of place and meet the people that I met and worked with the communities that I got to work with when I was there. And I really ended up loving it. I graduated in 2013, and but I've been in D.C. ever since. But do miss St. Louis a lot. I mean, law schools typically uh, stretches you. Did you find it stressful? Did you <laughs> take to the work like uh, duck in water? What was it like? I didn't take to the work like duck in water. You know, it was very stressful. If you're asking me, did I have multiple emotional breakdowns? The answer is yes, I did. <laughs> it was really hard. The last time I was in school, I was like writing a lot of essays about paintings and artwork. And this was more of a rigorous use of my analytical mind, I guess. In a different type of a different type of analysis, I think, and it was really hard. And law school, it's about testing in a very specific and singular way. I'm not a great test taker, so that was very difficult for me. It's really just like you have three hours to spot every single issue you can find in this hypothetical that your professor has written, and that was really hard for me. Whereas the part where you get to actually meet with clients and meet people, that was great. That was really fun and came easy to me, but that is not tested <laughs> in schools. It was a huge shift. It was really different. I'm definitely of the mind that I don't regret having gone, but 
um, it was really, really hard on me when it was happening and I was happy for it to end. <laughs> that sounds so honest. And yet I bet you that you're proud you did it. It's sometimes going through that kind of testing more broadly meant than tests that we grow and, and gain experience in the world and come out somehow changed. I think I did learn a lot about myself. I think I learned a lot about, how do I want to say it? Really, just because you're not good at one type of test doesn't mean you won't be a good lawyer or a good advocate. And that took me a really long time to figure out. I used to talk people out of going to law school, like people who are interested would say, oh, can we get a coffee? And, and you can tell me whether or not I should go to law school. And I'd be like, we don't need to get a coffee. I'm telling you right now, don't do it. I really changed my mind, I think. And one of the reasons is, honestly, it's because of watching how the legal profession has started to shape just in the last 10 years since I've graduated. It's really frightening the types of people who are gaining power in the legal profession and not just in the judiciary, but across the board. And so if you want to do something about that, you do have to convince normal people <laughs> with good values to go to law school and become lawyers. And hopefully we can all work together to kind of shift the direction the profession is, is pointing in. And that also includes making sure good people become judges too, because that's, I think, where we're at the most outmatched as far as good people versus people with questionable motivations in the judiciary. So now I don't do that anymore. Now I really do say, I'm honest, it's difficult, it's really hard. And it's expensive. <laughs> it's really expensive. But if you have a clear idea about what you want to do after you graduate, it's, it's worth it. And you can really make a difference in a profession that really needs the help, I think. Yeah, well, I do think we need more normal people with good values. It's pretty apparent. And it's, it's yeah. interesting that you've found yourself right in the middle of that fight. What did you do right after law school? Uh, Typical things are the firms and the clerkships. And what did you do? Um, I didn't do any of that. I My first job out of law school was at an organization called Media Matters. So they do a lot of... Um, I know Media Matters. Yeah, I'm sure you know. Yeah, but I worked on a team called, the, called Courts Matter. So we did a lot of work combating misinformation about the courts. The right really has a monopoly. Not so much anymore, but at the time really had the monopoly on messaging around the courts and how they should work. And so a big part of my job was to say, this is actually not how courts are supposed to work. The way that the Wall Street Journal opinion pages are describing how the courts should decide this case is actually wrong. And in fact, the courts should be working for everyone and not just special interests. So that was kind of my job. Did you like working at Media Matters? Yeah, it was really interesting. It was interesting how going from not really realizing that the press ever talked about the courts at all to realizing that they do. And to the extent that they do, it's problematic. <laughs> so that was kind of an interesting piece of... But the way they talk about almost anything is problematic. If you know a lot about it, it's, it's well, it's, it's hard to do a good job, but also they're sort of systematically wrong about many areas of, of reporting. I think that's really true. I think specifically for the courts, I think they take the right, right-wing media takes advantage of the fact that they're the only game in town when it co comes to talking about the courts. And again, that's not so much true anymore. There are lots of really good legal writers in mainstream and more progressive websites and magazines and stuff now. But at the time, I think they felt like they pretty much had the market cornered on 
kind of popular messaging about originalism or stuff like right. that. Right. Like really yeah. developing a narrative about what the court is about. And that wasn't really true. And I think originalism is a really good example of that, where I think a lot of otherwise liberal people really thought that originalism was like a real thing. It's not. <laughs> they just made it up. They just made it up about 40 years ago. It's only the same age as me. But the concept of originalism had a really good PR team. And so I think a lot of people think of it as like, well, it's just a honest disagreement that I have. I don't personally believe in originalism, but there's nothing inherently wrong about it. There is something inherently wrong about it. But the left, I think, has a lot of catch up to do in explaining to people where originalism came from, why it is bad. It's just made up. It's just a nice way of saying, I don't think people who are different from me should have constitutional rights. It's not a value neutral legal philosophy. Why do you think that we kind of lost that messaging war? They had the Federal Society. We made the American Constitution Society a while later. In the Warren court and for quite a while as the court drifted to the right afterwards, there was a sense that the court was where you would go to redress grievances in society. And there were a whole series of decisions in many, many areas that seemed to progressive to be taking the country in the right direction. And maybe we took it for granted. Yes. You think that's it? Exactly. I think that's yeah. everything you said is exactly right. I think that our side has always thought of the court as an institution that grants rights or expands rights to underrepresented or marginalized groups what we've always believed, but it's not true. Actually, that stretch of the Warren court and a little bit after was unique, actually, for the Supreme Court, because before that, they didn't even really think that Congress had the authority to set a minimum wage or set occupational safety and health regulations, There's some things just like that. decisions from slave Dred Scott through all the decisions in the 1900 to 1910, and then against Franklin Roosevelt, they were holding back progress for the longest time. That's right. And it was really pretty relatively recently. And just for now, I think we can think of it as a pretty short window of time that the court was effectuating minority rights, like counter majoritarian rights, that it's not about whether or not you're in the majority. It's about whether or not your constitutional rights have been violated. That was the driving force. And that's not the case anymore because there was this conservative backlash that started out pretty quiet, but got a little bit louder where, you know, these guys locked in and they were guys, by the way, mostly. <laughs> they put a retrograde woman on recently. Yeah, yeah. Right. But I think, you know, after, after Roe, even like in the, a couple of years after Roe v. Wade, Wade was decided, um, evangelical Christians didn't really care that much. They thought of abortion as being a Catholic thing. Like it didn't really matter. It wasn't that important. But I think that you know, your Nixons, your Reagans saw a political opportunity there to turn those issues into uh, a wedge issue. And so they created a morality argument where there hadn't previously been one. And I think a lot of legal elites at the time, including Scalia, who was one of the first faculty advisors for the Federalist Society at University of Chicago, was like, oh, no, the Supreme Court is granting rights to people that we don't like. They're allowing women to have autonomy over their bodies. They're allowing black people and people of color to have constitutional rights. And we don't think that that's the case. They're allowing people of different races to marry each other. They're... We can't let this happen. We can't allow 
the distribution of power to be moved around in such such a dramatic fashion. So we need to figure out a way to um, reassert power and control over these people who are being granted rights by the Supreme Court. And the best way to do that is to take over the judiciary. So that's what they did. They created the Federalist Society. They came up with this concept of originalism, which I've said was really at the time just a polite way of saying, I don't think women and people of color should have constitutional rights. As it turns out, you don't need to be nice about it because Donald Trump came along and just said it out loud and everyone loved it. But at the time, in the 80s, they thought they should at least be nice. But that's what that movement was about. And they built up a lot of power. And I think Democrats in the Senate and maybe even voters just missed it, just didn't think that it it was real, didn't think that it would really ever be a problem. And I think we believed that for a long time about Roe, that it was safe and that it would be fine. And it wasn't. This has been the project for the last 50 years. And they achieved one of their signature goals this year when they overturned it. It's been quite hard to watch. And some of the successes they have have been by a hair, like the Gore election, maybe 500 votes in Florida. These things have consequences that are enduring the way they, you know, blocked Garland. They've managed to thread the needle, unfortunately, on some of these things to get a six to three majority and stack the lower courts. Tell me what you did after Media Matters as you continued your career. From there, I went to the Hill. I worked for Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton. She is the non-voting delegate for the District of Columbia. DC. She's my non-voting delegate. Yeah, she's mine too. Yeah. <laughs> and she's been forever. Yeah, 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 pretty much. I mean, there's probably no one. I mean, it's amazing what she gets done without having a vote. It's really impressive. I, re- I really think she's created a really incredible blueprint for how you can do things, even when you're at like a very significant disadvantage. And there's probably nobody who's done more for the District of Columbia than her. I mean, she really has just been an incredible advocate for the city. But obviously her signature policy priority is DC statehood. So I worked on that a little bit. I mean, everyone in the office works on that. (laughs) How is she to work with? She's great. And like I said, she was a a law professor before. And she when I worked for her, she was still teaching a seminar at Georgetown. So she definitely has like a lot of law professor vibes. She's a really good strategist. Like she really looked around and said, okay, look, when she first got elected, she said, okay, look, we're not getting DC statehood right now. But what can we do to try to claw back as much home rule authority for the city as we can? And so she came up with basically a slate of legislation, different pieces of legislation that would give DC expanded home rule, like control over our budget, control over other aspects of city life. And some of it has been really successful. She hasn't gotten everything passed. But for example, like when I worked for her, we found out that the city can't enter into contracts with the federal government without congressional approval. And it was playing out in this very silly, small way. Basically, the city wanted to Uh, renovate a park in downtown DC that was technically owned by the National Park Service. And we couldn't enter into an agreement because of the way Congress has control over our budget. And she was able to get a bill passed to change that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's really little things that make a really big difference. So it's stuff like that, that she works really hard on. And she's been a big champion for our uh, public transportation system here too, of course. So that was kind of fun to work on as well. Depressing, but fun. (laughs) What was next? 
after that, I went to work for Demand Justice. And Demand Justice is post-Trump? Yes. Yeah. I think I started working there in 2018. So yeah. I really enjoyed my time on the Hill, but I really felt like I had been, like many people, really radicalized after the 2016 elections. And I remember election night 2016 being really just afraid about what was going to happen. And not just because Trump could pass a lot of really bad legislation, which they sort of did, but that there was no institution available to keep him in check. And I was really, I really immediately became worried about the Supreme Court. Just I couldn't think of how we could stop Trump if the court was doing political favors for Republicans. So I was really, really worried. And so I started thinking about really joining that fight um, after leaving the Hill. And so that's what I did at Demand Justice. Within three months of me starting there, Kennedy retired. And we had to just give it everything that we could to try to prevent Kavanaugh from being confirmed. And we weren't successful, but I think the silver lining of that campaign and that fight is that Republicans can't hide what they're doing in the Supreme Court anymore. People are paying attention. I think their conventional wisdom had been, well, we can just get the Supreme Court to do bad stuff on our behalf and we won't have to accept any of the political blowback for that. That's not true anymore. And it's because they picked somebody as repulsive as Brett Kavanaugh. If they hadn't done that, they just picked anyone slightly less terrible. I think not as many people would have paid attention. So the silver lining is to the extent that the conventional wisdom had been Republicans pay more attention to the courts than Democrats do. That's not true anymore. And it started with Brett Kavanaugh. Well, it started with the Merrick Garland thing, but the Brett Kavanaugh piece did not help. Back in 2018, I talked to Chris Kang, mm-hmm. who was there at Demand Justice. And I got a sense of like what what the group was up to through that, but I haven't followed it too closely since then. Tell me a little bit about like the effort there, the size of it, the role as you see it of Demand Justice. I left three, two, two and a half, three years ago. So many things may have changed with that caveat. But when I was there, it was a lean, mean fighting machine. <laughs> there were just a small handful of us and we were trying to fight the battle on every front. So in the media, we did do quite a few public events like grassroots efforts. We did the people's filibuster I think that lasted for 48 hours. We were basically just inviting folks to come up to the microphone and speak about why they thought Brett Kavanaugh shouldn't be confirmed. I think the guiding principle was let's stop conceding that the courts are for conservatives. They are for us too. And so to that end, we really need to, one, make sure people are aware of how exactly the Supreme Court, and not even just the Supreme Court, but the lower courts do, can negatively impact your life. And two, that you do have a role in making sure that the courts are fair, because a lot of people don't understand the link between Senate confirmation and the makeup of the court. So that was like a big part, I think, of the work was really just laying a foundation for progressives to understand how the courts work and then giving them opportunities to fight to, to make them better. Do you think there was a chance to beat Kavanaugh? It would have depended on Susan Collins just waking up with a different thought in her mind. I I don't know that she's responsive to activists in the same way that a lot of other members of Congress are. I know that we tried. I know that everyone in Maine gave it their all. We went to Maine. I went to Portland and we did an event up there with Cecile Richards and 
other women talking about Brett Kavanaugh and access to abortion. It was really challenging at the time because I think, I know it's hard to imagine now, but even just in 2018, everyone just thought they're never going to overturn Roe. It's fine. You guys are overreacting. This is not that big of a deal. It's just one person. And that's effectively what Susan Collins said. She said, well, Brett Kavanaugh promised me he wasn't going to overturn Roe and that's good enough for me. She just wasn't responsive to her constituents. And that happens sometimes. There are limits to external pressure. And for her, she was getting, I think, better signals from her donors than she was from her constituents. So she went with the donors on that one. I think that if she had voted no, Manchin would have also voted no, and he would have been defeated. That's what I think. And thus is history made, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I watched the Bork fight way back when, and the way that one rolled out differently was very very interesting. But I think now both sides form up their teams and they, it sounds like a professionalized system for defense and offense and crazy system right now. Did you go from there to Indivisible or there's something Mm -hmm. in between? Yeah. Yeah. I went, uh, I joined Indivisible in July of 2019 and to run our democracy policy campaign. I felt like the courts should be like a strong part of that campaign because everything that we care about is going to end up in front of some judge somewhere. So I was really excited to kind of include that in our democracy policy campaign too. So for the last two and a half, three years, just been fighting the good fight for voting rights and against election subversion and for a better Supreme Court. And it's been great. It's been really wonderful to be able to meet with and work with so many incredible activists all over the country. The people in our movement are amazing, really amazing what they've been able to accomplish, even in a really difficult political landscape. Indivisible kind of broadened its mandate over time. It really went from pressure people locally about their votes and policy stuff to, it seems like to me, much more uh, getting into the electoral arena, getting into the 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 fights on on things like you're doing do you think that it is doing a good job in in that or there's some critiques about the distance between the national indivisible and the local indivisibles and some funders have been less uh, enthusiastic about it than they were early on you got to speak for a place you work at, but yeah. well, I'm not sure I have a great answer for a big chunk of your question, just because that's just not my area of expertise at the organization. But what I will say is I think that holding people accountable in the electoral arena is the same as holding them accountable in the legislative one. So if you are, um, if the person that you're trying to pressure is not responsive to you, in their votes, then yeah, the next phase is to try to find somebody to primary them. I think they're kind of related. They hold hands, those two things. So I think that's what we've tried to do. I think we really just want to have a Congress that's made up of people who care about our democracy. You know what I mean? And right now I think we're we're just like too short in the Senate. It's really frustrating. We're leaving it all on the field <laughs> to try uh, I, to increase I, I, our margins. I sure hope we're not all. going the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's the unrig the courts coalition? 
Yeah, so that's a coalition that I founded with other partners of ours who care very deeply about the courts, but very specifically, this coalition is laser focused on um, gaining support for the Judiciary Act, which would add four seats to the Supreme Court. So that's with our good friends at Take Back the Court, Demand Justice, Stand Up America, lots and lots of other folks. We are really excited that League of Conservation Voters and Greenpeace both came out in favor of court expansion this year. Obviously, the court is hostile, not just to democracy, but to climate as well, and lots of other things. I don't want to spend the whole hour talking about what the Supreme Court is hostile to. <laughs> but, <laughs> but basically, the goal of the coalition is really to be the one place where progressive groups can really talk about the best way to move this issue forward. It's difficult. I'm not going to sit here and say, we're going to pass the Judiciary Act this year in the lame duck. Like That's not going to happen. But I think what we are aiming to do is soften the ground and really just say, look, you think I woke up wanting to add four seats to the Supreme Court? No, but they're forcing my hand here with the people that they've selected and the behavior that they're exhibiting. This is not a normal Supreme Court. These folks have gone off the rails in a way that's really damaging to our democracy and to our personal liberties. The only way to fix that is to add seats to the Supreme Court. So as a coalition, we just hosted a live stream event talking about the upcoming October term, lots of really scary cases to keep an eye on and really making people feel like there's still ways to stay engaged and to fight back, even though the hill is steep and it will be difficult, but it's worth doing. It does seem like the hill is steep. I know that the Supreme Court has varied some in size, particularly early on, and that's not fixed. It's more convention now that, that it's nine. But there is a risk to changing it that then you can just constantly have it being changed and it becomes a political football, even though it's a football that we've currently lost. I think people worry that it, it opens the door to just continual disruption of norms. And so there's that aspect of it. There's also like, we'd have to have the Senate and the presidency at the time confirm those justices. A lot of political things would have to line up in order to make it happen. How do you think about the sequence of things that might have to transpire for this to come to fruition? Well, we definitely need a trifecta. <laughs> There's no question about it. No, Republicans are not going to help us fix the Supreme Court. <laughs> they like it the way that it is. They don't want to change it. To your first question, won't it cause whiplash back and forth? It might. That, that's something that we heard about the filibuster a lot, too, when Indivisible was talking a lot about getting rid of the filibuster. A lot of folks were saying, well, yeah, but when Republicans get power, then they'll get rid of the filibuster. There's always the potential for that. But I think at the end of the day, Republicans are going to do bad things, whether we do something good now or not. So we should do the good thing while we have the chance and let them do the bad thing and show everybody that they're bad people. That's not a reason not to act now. I think that's like one of cinema's reasons for not wanting to get rid of the filibuster, just in a different context, is it'll cause this kind of tit for tat or whiplash or whatever. But that's not a reason not to deliver for people when you have the chance now. Republicans are bad people and they're going to do bad things regardless of what Democrats do now. Like, what was it that we were being punished for when Mitch McConnell held that Scalia seat open for a year? What did Democrats do to, to earn that piece of retribution? Nothing. We didn't do anything. 
he's always scheming and coming up with bad things. So we should do good things while we have the chance. I have a discomfort with uh, Republicans are bad people line. I, I mean, I think there are a lot of bad Republican leaders and certainly bad Republican people, as there are bad people of every party. But there are also a lot of good Republican people, you know, that I think have a different lens on the world. I'm not so comfortable with drawing a bright line between good and bad. Are you so immersed in that polarization? I'm about Republican yeah. members of Congress. Republicans in Congress do bad things. And I think there are plenty of receipts to back me up on that particular point. I'm not necessarily talking about the people who vote for them. I think a lot of people... You mean people who people who storm the Capitol or plan sure. with that yeah. and try to vote against the the democratic process and electing a president or policy issues? Right. What I'm talking about is there's no reason for democratic politicians to not do something because a Republican politician might do something bad in the future. Republican politicians love to do things that are not helpful or undermine democracy or violate norms. And they are going to do that whether Democratic politicians do something good now or not. So it's not really about voters. It's about lawmakers. As Democrats and as a movement, our guiding principles should not be fear-based that a Republican le legislator down the road might seek to undo the progress that we've made. I want a progressive Supreme Court. And, but I wonder, like, if the if things were switched and the Republican Party was out of power in the court and they were proposing to add four seats to pack the court to the right, I mean, wouldn't we then be against it? I would say that they've already done that. We're already there. Like to the extent that so some of what we're talking about is not hypothetical. <laughs> they already did that. They already did the bad thing. They already held that seat open for a year to maintain control. They, the only reason they haven't added four seats to the Supreme Court is because they have not had to. They have gotten lucky in a couple of elections. They got lucky because the Supreme Court itself handed the presidency to George W. Bush. That was pretty lucky. I really need people to understand the Supreme Court itself is hindering our ability to participate in democracy. So this is not just an issue where hey, John Roberts' favorite color is red, my favorite color is green, so I need him out of power because we just have this very small disagreement. This is about the Supreme Court actively working to undermine our democracy so that they can maintain control and power. So it's different. <laughs> it's I think I generally agree with you. What do you think are the couple most egregious things that they've done so far in that regard? And what do you think are the couple that you fear are coming? Sure. Well, I'll do two and one if I can. The two worst things they did that were anti-democratic were Citizens United, which has flooded millions of mysterious money into our election system. And the second worst was Shelby County Beholder, where they basically, John Roberts, who has dedicated his career even before he became a Supreme Court justice or even a judge, has dedicated his career to destroying the Voting Rights Act. And he got the chance to do it and he took it. In Shelby County Beholder, he said, hey, we don't need sections four and five of this law anymore, which are the, the sections that say for states with a history of racial discrimination and election laws, you have to clear any new election laws with the Department of Justice because you 
in the past have discriminated against people based on race. The teeth uh, of the law. Yeah, exactly. John Roberts said, things have changed dramatically in the South. We don't need this anymore. That's a quote, by the way. Things have changed dramatically in the South. Within 24 hours of this decision coming down, there were special sessions in North Carolina and Texas where they were actively passing voter suppression laws to make it more difficult for certain types of people to vote. And one court said they targeted people of color, black people with surgical precision to make it more difficult for them to vote. And you can really draw a straight line from Shelby County beholder to Stacey Abrams losing the governor's race in Georgia. Like that's how stark it is. Then they say, it's okay. There's still parts of the law that exist. Section two, you can still bring lawsuits under section two. Then last year they said, actually, you can't do that either. Sorry. Section two doesn't really exist either. Now, they're hearing a case called Merrill v. Milligan about whether or not states can draw racist congressional maps and gerrymander people of color out of political power in states, and that will demolish whatever's left of the Voting Rights Act. So imagine trying to change what you don't like about this country in an environment where the institution that is supposed to protect your constitutional right to vote is saying you don't have one. You actually don't have a constitutional right to vote. That's like where we're at. Then you have the court saying, by the way, uh, we're overturning Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. But don't worry, we're sending it back to the states. If you have a problem with it, just take it up with your state legislature. And they know full well that because of their own decisions, that that is basically impossible to do, that it is impossible to make changes now in state legislatures because of voter suppression, because of intrastate gerrymandering. They knew what they were doing when they issued that decision. They know it's going to be basically impossible for people in Alabama, Texas, wherever the case may be, to actually do something about their decision in Dobbs. Going forward, it can get worse because <laughs> they're also hearing a case called Moore v. Harper. That's a case about something called the independent state legislature theory that would give unchecked power to state legislatures to decide how the states run their elections, how states assign electors to presidential elections, how ballots are counted. Not just to states, but to just the legislature, just not the, legislature. the governor, not the courts. Yes. The legislature can strip the governor of veto power over any voter suppression laws they pass, and the state courts would not have authority to hear legal challenges to unconstitutional voter suppression laws that are passed by the state legislature. That is what scares me about the Supreme Court. And that is why I am fighting for this pretty extreme step to add four steps, four seats, because that is what you do about a runaway authoritarian institution that is not operating functionally in your democracy. What do you think the prognosis is for Moore v. Harper? I mean, clearly there's at least three justices that, is it, well, there were three that early on in dissents signaled that they were for that. Mm -hmm. Who's the fourth now? The two that we're not sure about are Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. So that it kind of comes down <laughs> to them. I don't know. We need both of them? Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> not ideal. The, the thing is, the theory is so out of pocket. So you don't think John Roberts is on board with that? In a different case, has said he's open to it. Could be, here's the thing about John Roberts. I don't like him at all. I think he's a, not, a good, not a good actor in our democracy. But I, I'm staying away from saying he's a bad person. I'm trying to be 
respectful of, of what you said. His goal from even before he was a, a judge was to gut the Voting Rights Act and to make it more difficult for people to vote. <laughs> but the one thing we have going for us when it comes to John Roberts is that he's hyper aware of the court's reputation. And he knows that the court's reputation took a body blow this summer when they overturned Roe and Casey. Well, it took a body blow on the left, but it probably made 40% of the country or 30% of the country super happy. The thing about abortion is that it's actually a lot more popular than I think we we give it credit for. And and, and now we basically have a court that is underwater in their popularity for the first time in a long time. And that happened right after the Dobbs leak, that they are now like the least popular court in American history. And now we're also in a situation where I, I think as a result, there is majority support now for expansion. The last Gallup poll about it did have support for court expansion at above 50%. Still a lot of work to do and a ways to go. But John Roberts sees those polls the same way we see those polls. And I think um, he thinks, okay, maybe for this one, I don't feed the frenzy that the Supreme Court is an illegitimate institution. I saw a communication from a group of state Supreme Court folks saying, you got to leave us in the process. You can't take away state court power with this kind of possible decision. Did that come independently from them? Is that part of a marshalling the troops to defend the concept here? What's happening behind the scenes in sort of the efforts to persuade the court that this is just too out there? I'm not sure. I definitely think all judges love to have power. So I'm sure it didn't take a lot of effort to get (laughs) state Supreme Court justices to sign on to a letter like that. Obviously, many, many state Supreme Court justices care about democracy. You know, we all as lawyers take an oath to uphold the Constitution, and that's part of it. So I'm sure they, they care about that too. It's interesting because this is a different context, but I don't think too far afield with what we're talking about. You know, John Roberts hasn't met a campaign finance law that he likes. He's pretty much stricken them all down. Every single campaign finance case that he's heard, he has struck down, except one, which was when uh, there was a case about, um, so in a lot of states, judges have to run for election, partisan election. And there was an ethical rule about campaign finance for judicial elections specifically. And John Roberts felt like that that campaign finance reform should stay in place. So to me, and this is maybe a little weak, but to me, that does suggest that he has some deference to other judges. And so there might be a situation where he just thinks, I'm not going to strip every single state Supreme Court from the ability to rule on something so integral to a state's decision-making process. I don't want to give him too much credit, but it's a possibility. That coupled with the fact that he is hyper aware of his public relations problems could be he flips. If if Moore v. Harper goes the wrong way, is the solution a constitutional amendment instead of uh, adding to the Supreme Court trying to, you know, over time find a case to flip it back the other way? I mean, it seems like right now I mean, there are things in the Constitution they're from a different era, a less democratic era that we don't want to return to. Things like the Electoral College, the Senate. We could revamp the Constitution. I mean, there is some weird language where they say state legislature, right? I mean, there, there's a reason that this has been grabbed onto. 
do you know like the history of why that phrase is not the state, why it's the state legislature? Do we have to fix the document? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I do know that this, we were talking about Bush v. Gore earlier. Once again, this case comes back to haunt us because that's where the idea for the independent state legislature theory comes from. As Rehnquist had written, I believe in his concurrence, he kind of planted the seed for this theory to take hold. And so here we are again, it's grown at least into a big enough plant that <laughs> that Trump lawyers think it's worth pursuing in court. But I do think the Constitution is very clear that Congress has wide, broad authority to regulate how federal elections are run. The states administer them, but state legislatures do not have unchecked power to do whatever they want. So it could just be a law, like a federal law that overturns mm-hmm. this rather than a constitutional amendment. Is that? I think so. Yeah. Does that make some sense to me? Yeah. Assuming that uh, the court allows Congress to do it. I mean, it really all just kind of, come, it will just go back to the court again and they oh, can yeah, that's that true. Congress has the authority. Um, you see where I'm going with the court expansion thing, right? <laughs> but, um, but to your other question about constitutional amendments, if, if we were ever blessed enough to be in a situation where we could amend the constitution, I don't see why we would only do that. I mean, there's so much stuff that we need to fix in that document. We've talked about Citizens United. You know, corporations apparently have First Amendment rights to spend money as they see fit. That would be a really critical amendment to to do. Clarifying gun rights in the Second Amendment, that would be right up there for me personally. But I don't think we'll be in a situation anytime soon where we will have the numbers to make good changes to the Constitution. And that is because of the structural advantages that conservatives have in our political process. And unless they got overwhelming pressure from their own constituents to make those changes, there's no incentive for them to do it. I mean, you talked about the 40 plus year effort to move the courts to the right, which is part of move the country to the right and us being kind of outmatched during that time or, or kind of sleeping on the job or whatever, a sequence of things has allowed that to happen. They put a lot of money and a lot of effort and they made progress as they see it. How do you see the balance of power right now between the people working for a right-wing judiciary and the people working for what you're working for? Well, it depends on how, I think it depends on how you define power. I think if you just look at the numbers, there are more of us than there are of them. There are you more people. People. Yeah, pe- yeah, we have the people power, right? There are more people who think that Roe should be the law of the land than don't think that. There are more people who think that Congress should be able to pass responsible gun safety legislation than don't think that. Where there are problems is, I mean, it is wild, the amount of money on the right to maintain their control over our institutions. You know, there was a story recently about this guy, Leonard Leo, who used to run the Federalist Society. Then he became Donald Trump's judicial nominations advisor. He basically picked Donald Trump's Supreme Court shortlist. So that's where Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch came from. He was able to get (laughs) basically a tax-free billion-dollar windfall donation from a guy who who owns a multi-billion dollar corporation, signed over a bunch of his stocks to Leonard Leo and cashed them out. And he didn't have to pay tax. Neither of them had to pay taxes on any of it. And that is the way that the right is kind of 
funding this this effort that is deeply, deeply unpopular. So that's where we have a disadvantage, I would say, but we are in the right place as far as hearts and minds. It's complicated because the structural disadvantages baked into how our system works just makes it difficult. There are more of us, but it's like we don't live in the right states, right? We all live in major cities. We don't live in North Dakota. So it's hard to even get popular things passed because of the way the Senate is designed, basically. So it's a challenge. It's hard. I would say the silver lining here is that the Supreme Court now is doing stuff that's so unpopular, even independents and some Republicans are saying, that is wild. Wow. And that's how you see stuff happening like we saw in Kansas over the summer, where they rejected a, an attempt to ban abortion in that state. Kansas, of all places, showed up and turned out in favor of abortion rights. And that's what happens when you overstep. What else do you think is at risk in a runaway Supreme Court as we have? Well, they've already gone after the EPA's authority to regulate clean air. They are going after the EPA's authority to regulate clean water this term. Affirmative action is on the docket. So racial justice, I think, is a really big concern for me personally. And I think for a lot of people of color who are paying attention to the court, I've already talked extensively about voting rights, but that is the thing that keeps me up at night. Beyond that, they, they just agreed to take another labor law case that would make it easier for bosses to sue labor unions for going on strike. Obviously, workplace democracy is inextricably linked with political democracy, the way that we build power. All of those things are, are at risk. And there are more ways that I think this court can erode our bodily autonomy rights. I don't think that they'll stop at Dobbs. I think it's probably pretty likely that some state somewhere will pass some sort of fetal personhood bill or something, I don't know. Or perhaps Republicans will get into power and pass a nationwide abortion ban and the Supreme Court will allow it. There's a lot to be worried about with this court. They're no longer bound by the guardrails that we thought the Supreme Court was bound by. We thought the Supreme Court was there to uphold the Constitution, expand rights to people who are not being treated fairly. But now this court, very specifically, is doing partisan political favors <laughs> to help Republicans. So you can let your imagination run wild. I mean, where it runs most wild for me is in the determination of another presidential election, because so easily could come down to a chance to make a call that just happens to allow Trump to come back or DeSantis or whoever gets their nomination. Uh, yes. And I yeah. think this Moore v. Harper case that we've talked about is That's one, one door. of the strongest vehicles for that to happen. But you could very well imagine a situation like Bush v. Gore, where it comes down to one state and the Supreme Court says, stop the count. And starts to get like very rulesy about something that happened in Pennsylvania with flexibility around voting during COVID. Yeah. It seems like the work you do must be a pretty good fit for your inclinations. Is it keeping you challenged and happy or is it burning you out? What's, how are you feeling? Yeah, challenged and happy. Or when you say, you know, oh, that's an uphill battle, that's steep. It, it is, but like, but no progressive fight starts out popular. Otherwise, we wouldn't pick them. You know what I mean? Like that, that, that's like the beauty of being in this movement. Maybe it's as far to the 
<laughs> far outside of possibility as you can get, but it's still just right in the border of what's possible, but it's like right at the edge. Some of the things that seem impossible actually happen. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, I think there's so many examples of that in our movement, like $15 minimum wage. Nobody would have thought that that was possible. Um, I mean, gay marriage was yes. inconceivable 20 years ago. Exactly. Uh, it, and I just think there are so many other things like that that would have such an incredible impact on our country that I'm fine being the person where everyone's like, come on, you know, I'm fine being that person because I just think it's so worth it. I have this clarity of, that it's the right thing to do. That's really energizing, which is not to say there's not times where I'm like, <laughs> no, we don't win anything. <laughs> but, you know. If you look around at the other leaders in this particular fight, who do you think is doing good work? Oh, there are a lot. Um, there are so many people who are so dedicated to to court expansion in particular, but I think Take Back the Court, Sarah Lipton-Lubet at Take Back the Court, that organization has just been laser focused on Supreme Court expansion. I think even before Kavanaugh was nominated, like they've been at this for, for a while. Demand Justice, of course, has really raised the salience of the issue over the last few years. Excited that that groups who represent lots of different constituencies are involved because because the Supreme Court's impact isn't just on one issue or another. It's like not just abortion. It's not just democracy. So it's been really great to see SEIU come out in favor, LCV, League of Conservation Voters, Greenpeace, and groups like People's Parity Project, who I love. Their aim is to organize law students to be more aware of the ways that the legal profession hurts people and to be kind of a personal part of the change and making it more equitable. That's like a critical piece of this fight is training up younger lawyers to be aware of the inequities in the legal system. And that that includes the Supreme Court. The right has figured that out, by the way. That's part of what the Federalist Society does. And so I think having that counterbalance has been really incredible. Yeah, I wonder if the hope isn't in the kids going into law school now. And, yeah. You know, I'm sorry to say, but I do think people should go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> you want the right people there. You I know, do. With, with those yeah. degrees. Well, Megan, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Is there a question that I failed to ask you that I should have? No, but I really enjoy talking to you, too. I just love to talk about the court. I mean, I love it because it makes me angry. <laughs> but I just love to talk about the courts. It's just so critical. We took it for granted, really, not miss, but we took it for granted for too long. And we just assumed that things would just keep going fine forever. And they haven't. But what's been amazing for me just over the last two years, despite how difficult everything has been, is how many new people have come into this movement because they are worried about the Supreme Court. And it's like when people notice that something bad is happening, they want to change it. And that has been very emotionally satisfying for me. It's just been a real privilege to be able to work with people to try to move this issue forward. Well, it's a privilege for me to talk to people like you who are in the middle of it. And so thank you much. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you for having me though. That was Megan Hatcher Mays. She's at indivisible.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com 
or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.